0: Alan Jones, direct to the people,
1: right across Australia.
2: Well, good evening. It's our second week. Thank you for being with us. May I just say, though, good evening to our viewers all around the world. The response in the pro- to the program has been overwhelming, I think really for all of us, a bit humbling. Now, don't forget to tell your friends, it is pioneering but really simple. Just go to the website, alanjones.com.au. Now, if you've got a smart TV, you can watch on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search for Alan Jones Australia, click onto the live stream link, and you can watch it on your TV, lying on your lounge. You can watch on your mobile phone by just going to the website, alanjones.com.au. So let's get into the second week. Look, last week I asked, and I'll continue to ask, is the Australia today the Australia we want it to be? I'll have something to say shortly about the personally and economically destructive talk right now about this new virus. That shortly. I'm an optimist, but I'm also prepared to address issues of concern where things have to change. For example, where do we place the simple issue of debt? Yesterday, I asked an internationally renowned investment banker why debt no longer seemed important. He looked at me stunned and said, I've heard what you've been saying, Alan. We are in a mess. Well, at least it's a start if you acknowledge the problem. Last Thursday, Treasurer Frydenberg released the mid-year budget update. Now, if you talk to anyone in government... They talk about winding back the debt and delivering smaller government. Yet we are facing at least another decade of budget deficits and growing public debt, despite a projected surge in tax revenues of $106 billion over four years. Note the number, an increase in tax revenue of $106 billion. But the deficit, bottom line, will only improve by $2.3 billion. Where's the rest going? Answer, spending. And if the jobs market and business recover more quickly than expected from the Delta lockdowns, then more tax revenue will go to the government. Yet the deficit for the next financial year, 2022-23, is forecast to be $100 $100,000 million. And the government calmly says, oh, there'll be no budget surplus this decade. Gross debt will reach $1.2 trillion by 2024-25. But we're meant to be satisfied that over the Ford estimates, combined budget deficits have tipped to be only $2.3 billion better than had been estimated in May, despite buckets and buckets of revenue. A forecast figure of $106 billion, it could be more. Yet the deficit will improve, I repeat, by piddling $2.3 billion over four years. In this financial year, the government has upgraded tax receipts by almost $46 billion. An extra 18.5 billion in company tax, an additional 19.9 billion additional in personal income tax. Eight billion more in superannuation tax receipts. So this year the revenue collected in Canberra, get your head around this, will be 532.1 billion. 490,000 million will be taxes. It's a $12.2 billion increase in one financial year, but over the next four years, the budget deficits will only improve a touch over $2 billion. Where is there any evidence of winding back the debt? Now, included in these figures, I might add, the government has taken $16 billion of decisions yet to be announced. More spending. Bribing voters, perhaps. The Morrison government will tell you its economic plan is working, and it is true that employment has bounced back. There are more people in work than there were pre-pandemic, but that means there's going to be more personal tax and more company tax going to the government. This is a story of surging tax revenue, yet we're looking at a gross debt of $1.2 trillion in 2024-25. Some things that the poor taxpayer is not told. There's $106 billion forecast surge in revenue, and yet over the forward estimates, four years, the budget deficit will only improve by piddling $2.3 billion because government spending will remain well above pre-coronavirus levels for years and years. Now, only at the weekend, the immensely experienced and highly regarded editor-at-large of the Australian newspaper, Paul Kelly, wrote, and I quote, "...in reality, the country now faces massive structural spending demands that can't be denied on health, social services, aged care, above all on the NDIS, on a rising defence budget, think nuclear submarines, on decarbonisation and climate change and meeting the irresistible fiscal demands of an ageing population. He said these realities cannot be wished away. But he added the Liberals have surpassed Labor as big spenders. Spending now, he said, under Morrison and Frydenberg, and into the future, is running at a higher level as a proportion of GDP than during the Rudd-Gillard era, with spending in 2031-32 projected at 26.7% of GDP, distinctively above Labor's record. That's Paul Kelly. And the ominous warning is, quote, this is driven by structural factors and is permanent. That means the spending's inked in forever. Which leads Paul Kelly to write, quote, the Liberals are no longer the party of small government. The economist Chris Richardson has said the way I summarise where we are is that the economy got better, but the budget didn't. I'm saying it is not responsible to have a $106 billion surge in revenue, and yet over the forward estimates, the next four years, the budget deficit will only improve by a piddling $2.3 billion because government spending will remain well above pre-coronavirus levels for years and years and more spending factored in, $16 billion of decisions not yet announced, presumably election gimmies. Now, it's humbug for the Prime Minister to say he's made a commitment to smaller government. How, by any definition, is this smaller government? But this is what really bothers me. Do we accept that the Australia of tomorrow, which will involve young people barely out of school and university, that they should shoulder a massive debt load imposed upon them by governments today who won't be here in 10 years' time or 20 years or 30 years and won't be held accountable. But the debt remains for our young people to fund. This is a betrayal of future generations. It's time we put the word debt at the top of the hit list and reject every dollar where government and opposition seek to buy our votes with money they don't have. Well, now look. Three things are occupying headlines today. Omicron, appropriate responses to it, and the New South Wales Cabinet reshuffle. On Omicron, it's refreshing to note the comments of the two outstanding, genuine Liberal figures in the country, former Prime Minister Abbott and the current New South Wales Premier Perrottet. As Tony Abbott rightly argues today, and I quote him, it's only thanks to New South Wales Premier Don Perrottet that we're able to still look forward to a decent Christmas. But for him, he said, we'd still be forced to wear masks at all indoor venues, and but for him, we'd still dutifully be checking in everywhere we went, says Tony Abbott. He goes on, but for the new Premier's instinct for freedom and his example with reluctant interstate counterparts, we'd still be living in a health-policed state where everything is subordinated to the overriding goal of minimising COVID cases, where everyone is expected to conform to surveillance, Utterly unprecedented, he writes, in free countries. He rightly says in relation to Omicron and Dom Perrottet, quote, now with cases and not hospitalisations growing, there is massive pressure on Perite to reinstate check-ins, to make mask-wearing again compulsory and to lock up people. But as Tony Abbott rightly says, while Omicron is much more infectious, it's also much less dangerous than all the previous versions. He said, if we cannot cope with COVID now, we never will. He said, that's why it is vital the Premier hold his nerve, unquote. Look, interestingly today, British laboratory research conducted at the Cambridge Institute of Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Diseases argues in relation to Omicron compared to Delta that, quote, the research findings could point to Omicron causing less severe disease, unquote. Nonetheless, the splendidly clear thinker that Abbott has always been argues correctly, and I quote, as a culture... What we've demonstrated over the past 20 months is not a predilection for safety first, but a near obsession with safety only. And not just for encouraging anyone frightened of infection to take the best precautions available, but a mania for forcing everyone, worried or not, to live as in fear of a virus. He says worse even than the debt that will take decades to pay off is the public timidity and the official authoritarianism that could easily mark the moment when countries such as ours finally sank into a cocoon of decadence where fear of death rules our lives." Unquote. How true is all of that? I have fought against, as you know, this alarmism and fear and hysteria for months and months. Thankfully Tony Abbott has always been a member of that team. Now joined by the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. On the virus, Perrottet says simply, it's time to shift the balance back to personal responsibility. He says, quote, because a strong, healthy society is built not on the dictates of government, but on the common pursuit of the common good. He said, we're faced with our moment of truth. Fear will try to persuade us to push this moment down the road. But he said, fear defeats us all. We have to rise above it, calm, resolute and united. Premier Perrottet has argued today that, quote, the most important thing for all of us to remember is that As you go about your day, everyone you encounter also happens to be in the midst of a long and arduous test of their resolve. He says a touch of kindness and solidarity will go a long way. He said that's not easy. With so many conflicting opinions and reports out there, and when the age-old temptation of playing up the fear factor is just too good for some to pass up, he says fear and division can only hold us back. Well... Sadly, fear and division are in oversupply in the Liberal Party of New South Wales, which he leads. The Premier has a mammoth task in holding the line against the bedwetters and the lefties. If many of them had their way, we'd be in lockdown, covered in masks and buried in regulation. Which brings us to the New South Wales Cabinet reshuffle, a veritable nightmare for Perrottet, placating the preponderance of lefties within the Liberal Party. Now, as expected, has made a very fair fist of things as far as Liberal Party posts go. More women around the cabinet table provides a far better perspective. Stuart Ayres as Minister for Sport is an excellent decision, though racing should not be separated from the sport portfolio. Damien Tudhope with wider responsibilities gives the government some ballast. And Anthony Roberts into planning and homes is an outstanding choice. There are developers out there shovel ready, ready to meet the massive housing shortfall. Roberts may be just the man to put the bureaucrats in their place. And let those who know get on with the building of homes. Treasurer Keane with the energy portfolio was a worry. But Perite has an everlasting battle with the left. But then we get the after Barilaro National Party. The leader, unbelievably, is the Deputy Premier Paul Toole. And as I've said before, this is most probably as bad as it gets. This is the bloke who argued relentlessly in order to win his seat in the parliament against forced council amalgamations. His whole family signed a petition. He makes it to Parliament and he's given the local government ministry by the then Premier Mike Baird and introduces the forced council amalgamation legislation, the very issue he had comprehensively opposed in order to win his seat, what more need be said. And now he's played the get square game. The longest serving National Party MP in Australia, Melinda Pavey, who should have replaced Barilaro as leader and challenged a tool for the leadership, she's been dumped completely. Yet the whole of the bush, no Melinda Pavey. That advocacy has been crushed. And then Toole has taken the police portfolio. As Deputy Premier, you see, he's entitled to whatever portfolio he wants. David Elliott, an excellent police minister, has been tipped into transport. He had threatened to walk if police were taken away from him. But it gets even worse. In a party without much depth, Adam Marshall, the well-known young MP from up way, also a threat to Toole, gets dumped completely. He gets the pavy treatment. And what do you get? Ben Franklin, who was once in the Liberal Party, now in the National Party, is the Minister for the Arts. It's almost laughable. This is all decided by Toole, by the way. Piratei has to stand by and let Toole make a mess of things. I mean, the forces surrounding this outstanding New South Wales Premier are twofold. His own party is full of people who owe little allegiance to the conservative and liberal tradition. I doubt they'd be able to define it. And then the National Party has now gone from bad to worse, with limited capacity under Toole's so-called leadership to persuade anyone in the bush to vote for the nationals. Tool has done one thing today above all else. He's reinvigorated the shooters, fishers and farmers and One Nation. You see, people in the bush are smart. They know who speaks for them and Tool, via his forced amalgamation deception and this reshuffle with the dumping of people like Pavy and Marshall, certainly wins no currency in the bush. I'll tell you one thing, the toughest job in this country may well be held by the philosophically impressive New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. Holding back the forces of the left and the bedwetters on almost every front is a Herculean task. So far, he's proved equal to it. Long may that remain the case. All right, now, as we have said before, a federal election is upon us. Not for the first time people are concerned about the integrity of the process. Yet here we see Labor at its most stupid and irrelevant. The Federal Coalition Government recently presented to the parliament legislation in relation to voting, which simply requires voters to show identification when they enter a polling booth to vote. How simple is that? After all, to collect a parcel from the post office. To open a bank account, you have to have ID. So the Morrison Government said to prevent fraud. Voters should show a driver's licence, a passport or a bank card, and if they couldn't prove their identity, they could cast a declaration vote, which would be verified after the polls closed. I'm not too keen, by the way, on the notion that one voter could vouch for another who didn't have an ID. However, Labor and the Greens are up in arms. Of course, the federal government is right. The legislation will improve public confidence in elections and reduce the risk of fraud And we'll bring Australia into line with other liberal democracies. But I'll tell you what, we're not going to get the legislation through. Can you believe that Anthony Albanese, this is the alternative prime minister, accused the government with legislation to produce ID at the polling booth of trying to undermine democracy? Albanese's language described the legislation as, quote, an ugly, divisive piece of legislation. Albo, are you on something? He said, on the eve of an election, the Morrison-Joyce government is trying to ram through a bill to stop Australians voting. He said, this is a desperate attempt to undermine our strong democracy and deny Australians their basic democratic rights. This is a cynical move to minimise the number of Indigenous Australians who get the vote, unquote. What the hell is he talking about? Let me tell you this, in 2016... Malcolm Turnbull fell over the line in the federal election of July. Many would say that, for the nation, that was a pity. However, I read a report today in the Sydney Morning Herald, not Alan Jones, this was three months after that election in 2016, which Turnbull won by the width of a cigarette paper, and it said, quote, more than 18,000 people have been asked to explain why they apparently voted more than once at the federal election. The story went on, quote, despite heavy fines and the risk of jail time for multiple voting, two people were marked off the electorate roll 11 times on July 2. A further two people had their names marked off five times, while four others had four marks and 51 people had three. All up 18,343 people were asked to explain why their name was checked off more than once. But you see, this is how futile the system is. Why ask those people? I suspect someone else was voting using their name. 6,750 instances of apparent multiple voting in New South Wales, 4,800 in Victoria, 2,792 in Queensland. But if someone voted 10 times, say, in the name of Alan Jones, it's no use talking to me. How would they ever find the people who voted in my name? So, as the article rightly suggests, despite 8,000 cases of suspected multiple voting, at the 2013 federal election, not a single person was prosecuted. How important is this? Well, unbelievably so. For example, if 5,992 people had voted differently in six electorates, Kevin Rudd would not have defeated John Howard in November 2007. If a mere 1,100 people had voted differently in two electorates, then in 2010, Oakshot and Windsor would have been irrelevant. The Coalition would have formed government. Neville Rand became Premier of New South Wales in 1976 by one seat, but in the seat of Hurstville, his margin was fewer than 20 votes. If people just in that electorate had voted several times, Neville Rand would never have become Premier. In that anthology of essays to which I have referred, Australia Tomorrow, there's an excellent essay on this very issue by Senator James McGrath, who was the chairman of the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters. Now, by the way, it'll be a splendid Christmas present oztomorrow.com.au, 38 outstanding essays on what I've been talking about by conservative thinkers, Australia Tomorrow. Well, Senator McGrath Queensland has twice recommended voter ID. The latest legislation bids to do just that, voter identification. Labor's called the proposal racist and discriminatory, unquote. It's a simple proposition of it seems now, as I said, The legislation's going nowhere. Well, Professor David Flint has written about this recently in plain language in which, disturbingly... Now, David Flint has a lot of credibility and he chooses his words very closely. He opens a piece he wrote by saying this, and I quote, "'Fraud is an intrinsic and disgraceful part of the Australian electoral system.'" Professor David Flint... Is an Australian legal academic who was awarded the world's outstanding legal scholar by the world's jurist in 1991. And he joins us on this very important issue. David Flint, thank you for your time, but that is a dramatic comment. Fraud is an intrinsic and disgraceful part of the Australian electoral system. What, therefore, are Labour on about when Albanese says on the eve of an election, the Morrison Joyce government is trying to ram through a bill to stop Australians voting?
1: Well, this is ridiculous. And it's especially insulting to the indigenous people. The indigenous people are well used to driving. They're well used to logging in on the QR code. They know all these things. They know that you have to have some identification for driving, for accessing government services, going to the post office, all sorts of things. And how insulting it is to say that the indigenous can't manage this sort of thing which everybody manages we've had to all do it during the pandemic what on earth is he talking about the problem's bigger than those multiple votings that the electoral commission admitted because during the same sex plebiscite the uh, bureau of statistics had a quarter of a million return to senders a quarter of a million and that means that there were probably many more probably many times that names that should not have been on the roll because the Bureau of Statistics was using the electoral roll. They then decided not to send them back to the electoral commission. I'm sure they probably asked the electoral commission first. And what happened was they were all destroyed. That meant a quarter of a million names, probably many more because not everybody goes to the bother of returning something that comes to their address. That means we have an extraordinary number hundreds of thousands of names that went to the following election in 2019 who were still on the roll the really big problem alan the really big problem is not so much multiple voting although in 1984 for some inexplicable reason the labor government um, mr hawke's government decided that uh, my going to my local school and voting there wasn't the right thing to do i can now vote in 50 places In my electorate, so I could vote 50 times if people didn't know me, and uh, easily uh, just uh, register 50 votes, and they'd never be able to pick them up. The problem is, of course, the really big problem is between the calling of the election and the closing of the rolls. And the High Court handed a tremendous gift to those fraudsters who wanted to take advantage of this, because. Uh, john howard legislated to stop that he said that uh, the legislation said the rolls close on the very day that the election's called which seems perfectly reasonable everybody yeah. knew that year yeah. there was going to be an election two people who were in breach of the law were rushed through the high court they were given extraordinary treatment they had two days in court and the next day the court gave its decision didn't give its reasons until several months later just before christmas they dropped that into the internet and we, those who could have been interested found that it was a 4-3 decision very close and they'd found a provision in the constitution which i can't find saying that uh, john howard shouldn't have done that in any event between the calling of the election and the closing of the rolls the t- the marginal seats are particularly targeted and an enormous number of fake enrollment are put in it's very it's ridiculously easy to enrol. That's the next thing they've got to do. With. They've got to clean up the ease with which you can enrol because you just enrol in front of anybody else. And it without ID, you can, you can, you you can roll, you enrol
2: without any ID as well. You see, just a simple point here, though, David Flint. What credibility attaches to an alternative Prime Minister who says that a proposal to implement ID when you vote is an attempt to undermine our democracy. Now, is this the kind of person that should be running the country?
1: Well, that is is very suspicious. Nearly every country in Europe requires ID. Certainly the French do. It's normal that you come along with all of your documents before you vote, and that's the proper way to do it. Requiring ID is done, for example in relation to the QR code. We didn't hear anything from Mr Albanese saying, this QR code is outrageous. It means that the indigenous people can't go into shops and post offices and all sorts of places that you needed the QR code. What is he talking about? What is he trying to hide? Would be the better. Quiet.
2: And then James McGrath brought, brought forward recommendation, I think number six, that the Electoral Commission bring forward a costed proposal and timeline for an electronic certified roll before the next federal election. Nothing's happened about that. So, in the situation you're talking about, where you can vote in 50 different stations on the day, on an electric roll, once you voted once, your name would go off everywhere. I mean, where is that proposal?
1: Exactly. And Mark Latham, a few years ago, put in an additional suggestion and that was, as your name is struck off, you would be photographed. So if you're claiming to be voting for a dead person, which was the old rort, remember, Bob Whitlam was alleged to have said... Oh, that's a great story.
2: Sorry, stop. You've got to tell... This is a true story. I'll let David Flint tell you. This is Joe Riddon. Joe Riddon was the member for Philip. He wasn't actually minister in the... um, in the Whitlam government and it was a fairly marginal sort of seat and anyways was beaten. So, David, you tell the story. Go on.
1: Well, Gough Whitlam said when he lost the seat, to lose, to lose an election, comrade, where there's one cemetery is pretty bad, but to lose an election where there are two cemeteries <laughs> is absolutely appal- appalling. It's right. He said something without effect. I know. And, and, and I have a friend, he's no longer with us, a very decent man, very reliable. He was working for a big union. He used to come in uh, and he'd find the receptionist cutting up the back page of the Sydney Morning Herald every morning. He said, what are you doing? She said, I, I cannot tell you that. He found out later that they accumulated all of the death notices and then on election the people would be sent to the relevant electors, yes. and they would all vote in the names of the deceased people. It isn't that appalling. But the really big thing is that week between the calling of the election and the closing of the
2: Rolls is a scenario yes, but I mean,
1: application. But if
2: 18,000 people, as has been established by Tom Rogers, the Electoral Commissioner, had voted more than once, 18,000, if they voted, voted five times, that's almost 100,000 votes. I mean, yes. how do we know, David Flint, we are being governed at any given time by the party that really won the election?
1: We certainly don't. We used to have what were called habitation reviews. The commission, the Electoral Commission, or whatever, the equivalent, would go around and knock on the door, and they'd say, well, uh, who? Live- you- you've got... Uh, the-, the man would answer the door and say, yes, we live here, Where my husband and my wife live here, and so on. And then they'd say, well, what about uh, Joe Bloggs and uh, <laughs> his 18 adult sons or something like that? They would find houses absolutely full of people. In Bribie Island, where there's a road which runs along the shore for miles, found that on one side are the houses who have the waterfront views, on the other side is the ocean. They found that there were people registered on both sides of the street. Absolutely. So you had people who were living in the ocean. Yes, it's, it's just extraordinary. Record.
2: See, David, it's- the issue is here is we have to be confident, don't we, in our elections so that we can be confident in our parliament and voter ID would be a start. Now, here the Labor Party are arguing that ID voting would discourage the Indigenous, and as David just said to you there, with all other Australians, the Indigenous are very well accustomed and fully understand the need to ID to drive, to collect parcels, to access QR check-ins, for banking, medical and government services. So I don't know what Anthony Albanese is on about. But nonetheless, David, we're, we're no further down the track here, are we? Just summing up, where are we going?
1: This bill has to get through, and the people who are who've decided understandably that they're they're going to not help the government those on the side of the government one nation and so on should all join in with the government because this is crucial for the proper election we must have an election with integrity and then those other reforms must come in for example they've got to get rid of the 40-day rule that is you've got to sue you've got to challenge within 40 days Mm. of the election before you can before it's declared before you can uh, make a claim to say that that election wasn't proper now mm. what we really need and it was uh, amy McGraw who proposed this you well, might remember yes she, it was amy uh, she, mm. she proposed that there'd be an electoral ombudsman and if you had somebody like lex walker who was that very strong man one of her people who regularly goes in he puts in submissions to every every electoral commission every business that the parliament uh, does a review of the election he, he would be superb as the, as the ombudsman because you really need somebody who can immediately get on yes. and, and deal with the problems
2: which have arisen in a particular election. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. I tell you what, just repeating, that's a hell of a story. When, when Joe just repeated When Joe and lo- lost the seat of Philip in Sydney, it's worth telling it again, it was in 1975, Gough Whitlam, and you know the way Gough talked, with exasperated comrade, to lose an electorate in which there's one cemetery may be explicable, but to lose one in which there are two cemeteries is unforgivable. So this is going on even today, people voting in the name of dead people. David, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your contributions. A very, very important issue. We'll come back to the issue again in the new year. Thank you for your help as well. Have a wonderful Christmas and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. There he is, Professor David Flint. How important is that? You can make comments about that, by the way. Just go to the website, alanjones.com.au or Alan Jones Australia, the Facebook page. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Voter ID. Anthony Albanese, believe you, the alternative Prime Minister says it would be an affront to democracy. Albo, you're on something, my friend. Now, time for your say. And in the past week, I'm telling you, there have been thousands of viewer and listener comments based on the content discussed on this digital program, Alan Jones, direct to the people. Now, keep on commenting, keep liking, keep sharing the content. Remember, we are a community, you and us, We'll be heard by our politicians because come election day, we all thankfully get a vote. Now, regarding my editorial from last Thursday about the Prime Minister's address to the Sydney Institute dinner where he talked about giving our freedoms back and that the days of big government are over, Barbara said, quote, all said too late in the piece, should have stated this from day one for me, he's lost all credibility. Ali commented, politicians should take a temporary pay cut as an act of understanding and compassion for the financial loss experienced by our fellow countrymen and women. Emma writes, too little, too late. For him to make these empty statements, trying to score political points, sorry, Scott, your credibility has left the building. Caroline commented, so true, he's in damage control, trying to tell people what they want to hear, only because an election is coming up, not because he means it. In relation to New South Wales Premier Dom Perrottet's Cabinet reshuffle, Katrina commented, I would have loved to have seen Tanya Davies get a position. Many people share that view, I might add. And Brendan commented about the new digital television show when he said, great work, Alan. You've got my support. I hope you have wild success and go viral, no pun intended. You're the balance Australia needs in the media in a country where bureaucracy has gone mad. Best wishes. Keep the truth bombs coming. Well, that's your say for this Monday night, December 20. Now, remember to have a comment below or like or share the program videos. We love your input. Go to my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, and follow me there or subscribe on YouTube and we'll keep sharing your opinions. Of course, on the website, alanjones.com.au, there's room there for you to express your views, read the previous editorials and comments that I make on other matters like rugby and cricket or the theatre. Well, now, look, talking about the theatre, I have to tell you, It is a horror show in Britain. I warned, remember, last Thursday, Boris Johnson was in trouble in the by-election in the seat of North Shropshire. This is a beautiful part of England, west-central. It's on the border of Wales in the northwest, almost entirely rural, very scenic, beautiful lakes, dairy farmers, cereals, sugar beet pigs. This is blue-ribbon Tory country, a seat that the Conservative Party had held for nearly 200 years. They lost it with a 34% swing to an all-but-dead Liberal Democrats. When the Conservatives last lost a safe seat to the Lib Dems in 1993, the Conservative government collapsed in 1997. Make no mistake, this by-election was a referendum on the shortcomings of Boris Johnson and his government. It derived from the resignation of a Conservative MP, Owen Paterson, for using his influence in the government to lobby for third-party interests who were paying him. Against the advice of his own staff to say nothing of his party, Boris Johnson wanted a 30-day suspension of the MP. He didn't prevail. Patterson resigned. A political disaster for Johnson. Then, of course, there's this business of vaccine passports. In September, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, ruled out vaccine passports for access into nightclubs and large events. Even then, in September, there was opposition from Tory MPs. In September, the health secretary, health minister said he had, quote, never liked the idea of saying to people, you must, quote, show your papers to do what is just an everyday activity. I'm pleased to say we're not going ahead with the idea of vaccine passports, unquote. That was September. That didn't last long. The same health secretary, Sajid Javid, introduced that very measure into the House of Commons last week and was greeted with jeers and calls for him to resign from his own party members. It prompted a backbench rebellion. Ninety-nine conservative members voted against the passports, which legislation eventually passed the Commons with Labour's support. Only one Labor member voted against it. There, as here, Labor love controlling your lives. Well, these weren't the only issues on the voters' minds when they voted in North Shropshire. A 34 per cent swing. The vaccine passport was front and centre. A calamity for Johnson and his relationship with his party he may well have irrevocably alienated his base. There, as here, so-called conservative politicians are ignoring their constituency. But it's worse for Boris Johnson because he's become the kind of illiberal politician that he used to warn Britain about in his 20 years as a columnist and an editor. As with so much of this disproportionate response to the virus, none of these politicians can provide evidence which justifies either vaccine passports or lockdowns or masks being worn everywhere. Boris Johnson was unable to publish any evidence. So, Johnson has galvanised his enemies and alienated his base. The defeat in North Shropshire has Johnson's signature on it. On top of that, we have the resignation in the last couple of days of his Brexit minister, David Frost, a core architect of the Brexit strategy. Boris Johnson actually once described him as the greatest frost since the great frost of 1709. That was when Boris people laughed at Boris. Now they're laughing at him for different reasons. The issue here is that David Frost told the Prime Minister that he had to resign because of his, quote, concerns about the current direction of travel. In a letter released by Downing Street, Frost said, quote, I hope we'll move as fast as possible to where we need to get to, a lightly regulated, low-tax, entrepreneurial economy at the cutting edge of modern science and economic change, unquote. He said, we also need to learn to live with COVID. I hope we can get back on track soon and not be tempted by the kind of coercive measures we have seen elsewhere, unquote. Well, vaccine passports are a coercive measure. Boris Johnson won a landslide election victory. As recently as December 2019, now he's facing the warning from his party that he must improve his leadership or face a leadership challenge. North Shropshire was held by the Conservatives by almost 23,000 votes. It now brings the number of Lib Dems into the Parliament to 13, still significantly down on more than 60 seats they held in the Commons during the mid-2000s. But the former Liberal Democrat leader, Tim Farron, said, millions of people around the UK, quote, have woken up this morning feeling that a bit of light has broken into the darkness, unquote. Now, admittedly, by-elections are a way the public can stick two fingers up to a government when they're angry. But this is an appalling result for the Conservatives in a part of Britain where the tradition of voting Tory, as one writer said, is baked into the earth. Yet almost 18,000 votes went to the Lib Dems, only 12,000 to the Conservatives, Labor on almost 4,000. It is the seventh biggest swing, 34.2%, in a by-election since World War II. The North Shropshire seat has existed in some form since the 1830s and until last Friday has always had a Conservative MP. The area voted strongly in favour of Brexit in the 2016 referendum. In the volatile world of modern politics, nothing can be predicted with any certainty, but these are dangerous times for the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Well, look, let me just say something. The federal member for the seat of Bennelong is the former champion Davis Cup tennis player who made it to eighth in the world Many would say he was the finest junior player we ever produced. John Alexander has now indicated that he won't be standing at the next election in the seat of Benelong, that he has held with increased margins since 2010, the seat you might remember, formerly held by Prime Minister John Howard. In an adjournment debate on December 2, 18 days ago in the Federal Parliament, Russell Broadbent, the very decent Federal member for the Victorian seat of Monash, rose in the House... Unbeknown to J.A., to say this, and I quote I rise to return this book, American Colossus, Big Bill Tilden, and the creation of modern tennis to the member for Bennelong. He lent me the book, and I now return it to him. The member for Bennelong, Russell said, has given me great gifts, not just the book. He gave me Indian Summer by the Gatlin brothers, with Roy Orbison taking it home. He's told me about songs, about places. He's told me stories. But for me, says Russell Broadbent, his greatest contribution has been that as an international person, to a degree, he's been above this parliament. His thoughts have been higher than our thoughts. His work on committees and the uplifting inquiry into infrastructure, I believe he's a prophet and a seer. He said, one day, John, one day, member for Benelong, the things that you put in those reports on that infrastructure and the way we do it will come to pass in this country and you will be lauded as somebody who was way ahead of his time. He said, as an international tennis player coming into this place, as you did, you had a different view of the world. You may not have been like other politicians here. You were different. You wanted to see national cooperation for the betterment and the greater benefit of the Australian people. That was your goal. Russell Broadbent said, that was your focus and always has been to me. He said, it's a great regret that you're leaving this parliament. He said, you know, I encourage you to stay on probably once a week, but your time has come. He said, I wish you the very best and I give you this song, Gentle On My Mind. And he said, John, you'll be gentle on my mind forever. Now, look, I'm telling you something. There aren't too many people who've sat on those green benches in Canberra about whom such a tribute could be paid. John Alexander is a very great Australian, but also a greater person. One of the many who deserved a spot on the front bench ahead of the mediocre mates who too often find their way there. I've already talked about the Australia we want this country to be. We are swimming in debt. How do we afford our infrastructure? How do we build the homes that our young ones need as you often heard me say, if you go out to some of the most productive agricultural land in the world, be it the Darling Downs in Queensland, the Liverpool Plains in New South Wales or the Western Districts in Victoria, you might be asked to pay $6,000 an acre. But if you go to Castle Island in New South Wales or the Morning potential in Victoria, Kenmore in Brisbane or their equivalents in Adelaide and Perth, to a lesser extent Hobart, you could be asked to pay a million dollars or more for a quarter acre housing block. So, totally unproductive land, except for putting a house on it, is $4 million an acre. The best agricultural land, $6,000. How can that happen? John Alexander has talked about this question of land values until he's blue in the face. The leaders in his party don't want to listen. J.A. nails the nub of the issue when he says, how is it that we have this massive escalation in the price of land and who benefits? How do you solve it? Well, my very good friend, John Alexander, joins me. Hopefully not for the last time. John, you've been chair of this chair of this parliamentary standing committee. I think your inquiry was called fairer funding and financing of faster rail. Now, if we just keep it simple, you're saying that there's a lump of land out there, it could be two acres or 20 acres, Badgerys Creek in Western Sydney. You cite as a classic example, some bloke unnamed bought a stack of acreage years ago for not much. Then government decides to build an airport and the land increases in value from 2,000 an acre to 10 million an acre. Just for our viewers, take up the story, would you?
0: Well, that's uh, the finding of the inquiry. That was the evidence. Uh, And it's simply when you add infrastructure and appropriate zoning, that the uplifts of land can be absolutely stupendous. And the problem that we confront and we're trying to find an equitable solution for the taxpayer is that we're spending some twenty billion dollars of taxpayers' money at Badgerys Creek and in that region on the airport, on roads, on rail, schools in the future, and hospitals, and the landowners are profiting. The money is going straight from the taxpayer, and and it's been Josh Frydenberg has said that for generations the taxpayers will be paying this back, but meanwhile the landholders have taken the profits,
2: Amazing. and
0: my concern is that when we move forward, if we ever see the light and why we need high-speed rail to strategically decentralise to release the pressure on housing in our major cities, release the congestion in our major cities, this game will get played time and time and time again. So we need a mechanism in place that is going to come into effect on the current value of the land, the value that it has right now, not after an announcement, because as Andrew McNaughton said in our inquiry, one minute, after you make an announcement of where you're going to put the infrastructure, it's too late. The land value's already gone up. So we've got to put this stuff in place now.
2: So, J.A., what should happen to landowners or speculators when they're provided with taxpayer-funded infrastructure and, as you said, favourable zonings by government, which then deliver enormous profits from the infrastructure when that infrastructure has been paid for by the taxpayer? What is the answer to that?
0: Well, the answer is uh, came in the evidence uh, in the ACT. If you seek a rezoning, a variation of lease, as they have in in the territory, you are up for seventy five percent of the uplift that you receive as a result of the rezoning, which inevitably is on top of new infrastructure. Uh, the other twenty five percent is then subject to capital gains tax. But if you would have applied that to one of the windfall uh people in western sydney who'd bought the land for three and a half million and on sold it for 500 million that person still would have been walking away with about 70 million dollars it's a very very good return but but the government would have been receiving over four hundred thousand to contribute to the cost of 400 the infrastructure million 400 million. 400,
2: 400 million 400 million
0: yeah. probably, yes um, get my zeros mixed up from time to <laughs> time, dealing with big numbers here. But yes. the numbers are, are stupendous. And and the evidence was clear that had we had Western Sydney been in the ACT, that all of the infrastructure would have been funded by that value capture mechanism.
2: Yeah, just to repeat the point that JA's making. Th- this stupendous uplift he's talking about has been caused wholly by taxpayer-funded infrastructure and nearby, I mean, has been entirely pocketed by the landowner. So you're asking the simple question, the taxpayer's been funding, or the funder of this good luck, shouldn't the taxpayer participate in the spoils? And currently he's not, and no-one wants to listen to you. Yeah, I call it Jeff. Just,
0: equitable and fair is what we need. We need a bit of Jeff at play here, uh, because it is unfair that the taxpayer should be impoverished for generations to come, while the lucky landowner is becoming, you know, going from rich to being unbelievably rich, being multi-billionaires. Yes, yes. And it's a concentration of wealth. It's un- un- it's unfair. Uh, it's not productive. And it really does need to be addressed before we move forward with any of the proposed infrastructure projects well, that, let, that let, we have
2: slated. Okay. Well, now, those are key words you just used move forward with proposed infrastructure projects. Again, I've got to say, no one listens to J.A. You've spoken to world leaders in this field, haven't you? Whether it's Hong Kong, Korea, or Japan, and I know that you're still talking to them. Just share this with our viewers, what they are saying.
0: Well, probably Korea has uh, a system in place that is absolutely applicable to our situation, where their high-speed rail is fully funded by value capturing, They have a rail and land authority that has the right to compulsorily acquire the land at the current price uh, on which they will develop uh, around a proposed new train station. And the federal government fund the other half by just capturing 50% of the uplift of all other lands. And that's how it's funded. And so it's the operations are funded, the maintenance, the repairs are funded in this way. and And the tickets are kept at a very, very low price because that increases the value of the land in these new uh, cities that are being created. Right, Japan people move there. Yeah, exactly people move the there, way. yeah.
2: So how, right. how is this... What is the status, therefore, of, say, infrastructure projects, modern infrastructure projects, in places like Korea and Japan where this value capture has applied compared to what we've got here? Well,
0: it's, it's a world apart. I, I mean, I've talked to... Uh, Shingo Yamagami, the ambassador from Japan, and he really is surprised that we haven't grasped why we need, you know, the reason, what is the purpose of high-speed rail? It's not really just for getting from Sydney to Melbourne in two hours. That's very good, and it'll take a lot of planes out of the sky and it'll reduce emissions. But it is for the relieving of housing pressures in your major cities and congestion, and that's what they confronted in the mid-60s. Tokyo was the most expensive and congested city in the world, and they had to had to decentralise, and they've been decentralising strategically ever since. And this is what has allowed their country to grow, to produce affordable housing. One of the key benefits is that we will have a supply of affordable housing for generations and generations to come. Yes. And that's really what is needed, because we're at a a 60-year low home ownership at
2: this point. Now, just take New South Wales, for example. If JA's proposal applied, a very fast train or whatever, young people could buy a very affordable home in Goulburn and be at work in Sydney in 20 minutes and, and just go back 25 20 sorry 25 minutes. 25 minutes just go back to that ACT thing again because it's worth repeating so when a developer seeks a lease variation in the ACT there's an impost of 75 percent of the increase in value that's what you're saying so someone bought the land at Badgerys Creek for four million and sold it for 500 million. Under the ACT structure, 75% of the 500 million minus the purchase price would come back to the taxpayer, which is the government. The seller would still walk away with 125 million, which is over 120 million more than he paid for the damn thing. Hardly unfair, is it?
0: Every everybody's doing very very well. That's why we, I think, to be fair, we want something that's just equitable and fair to all, but we don't want the, the the unearned beneficiary, the landowner
2: to take all of the profits at the expense of the taxpayer. Well, now, in the budget, New South Wales budget of 2021, which is this year, there was the announcement of an infrastructure contributions system. Does that have any legs?
0: Absolutely. Well, both Victoria and New South Wales are moving forward with windfall tax uh, impost. Uh, Victoria has done it just on rezoning at 50%, so that would couple well with uh, our federal capital gains tax. Rob Stokes has been moving forward with a similar impost that would apply to lands that are uplifted by either and or uh, infrastructure or rezoning, and uh, it's probably a more sophisticated model. I think it's for the federal government to align what is in place in Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT so that we have a consistency and we can roll these things out
2: nationally. Okay. now, on everything that you know, and I know you've worked comprehensively on this, you're a virtual dictionary and encyclopaedia of these projects, certainly in Asia. If you were given your head today and could build, set about building and approving a very fast rail system, where would you start, where would it go and how would you fund it? Well, the first corridor
0: would be linking Sydney to Melbourne. Uh, it would be funded by uh, capturing the uplift of the land, which would happen instantaneously after the announcement. So there'd be money in the bank virtually on your balance sheet, you would have something like 70-75% of the increased value of the land on day one, on which you could use to fund and finance the capital cost. We still have people in Canberra who are saying, oh, I don't think it will work because I don't think the ticket prices will pay for high-speed rail. Yeah, you know, They've been in the for huh. the last 30 years. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not the way prices. it is funded. It's funded by the uplift of the value of the land. Yeah. But we need to keep, we need to create industries. We need to be building this stuff here. We need to have a plan like the Japanese have done. There's so much we can learn from the Japanese. They've been building this stuff for 60 years. They are absolute certain you, you get certainty when you partner with them. They have offered. The Japanese government has offered to partner with Australia to roll out a high-speed rail network to and create an industry in Australia. And Look and at the problem we've got: the Sydney rail, we've got you know a Spanish rail that goes out to Dulwich Hill where Phil Dent used to live. We've got yeah you know, something else in eastern Sydney. There's three three light rail systems, and one of them are compatible with the other. Furthermore, <laughs> not compatible with the one in Canberra <laughs> or the one in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. We we'll get, to, oh, we'll get to Albury again, right. and oh wait. <laughs>
2: The I match up. <laughs> and i got, got to, to say, to I've it. got to say to our viewers, J.A. J.A. knocks on the door of the leaders in Canberra. They don't want to open it to talk about any of this. In that, uh, J.A. wrote an outstanding essay in that anthology I've been telling you about Australia Tomorrow and which would be a great gift to 38 essays on how Australia should operate tomorrow. But he writes this, If we continue to fail those who elect us to govern in a just, equitable and fair fashion, the grossly inequitable scenarios that have played out in Western Sydney will be repeated time and time again, with the lucky getting rich beyond belief and the taxpayer footing the bill with interest. So, J.A., just finally, you've been on this issue, now you leave Parliament, with the generous and accurate blessing of good people like Russell Broadbent. But if we want Australia to be what we think it should be, how do we achieve that by embracing the tremendous amount of work you've done over many years?
0: Well, I I think the first step is to respond to the generous offer of Japan uh, to set up uh, engagement between their departments, their ministries, uh, directly with ours and progress the matter. Enter into good faith negotiation. Because the current um, inquiry that we've just concluded taking evidence was on uh, procurement. And the big issue that we have failed is we've gone for the lowest price for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And the lowest price has denuded us of a capacity to produce things, has decimated our industry. And it might be seeming smart to take this, the, the low price, but we've we've lost value and mm-hmm. to create value, to create sovereign security, to rebuild our industry when we are procuring to move forward with these things, we have to look at how much can we produce here in this Good country on you. Good on you. Uh, when we're entering into these Absolutely. very, very long pipelines of infrastructure.
2: Good on you. Will you keep at it? We'll keep at it. i got to say, Russell Broadbent has said, your thoughts, quote, have been higher than our thoughts and that on infrastructure, he said, he's a prophet and a seer. Surely the urgent reforms I think J.A. seeks must come to pass immediately or the opportunities will pass us by. There he is. This is the retiring MP for the seat of Benelong, John Alexander. J.A., you've given great service to Australia on many fronts and I hope I embarrass you, but I don't care. You are a great Australian and a wonderful person. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your scholarship. We'll keep in touch. Happy Christmas to you and your family.
0: Happy Christmas and love to you and your family
2: on. Thank you, J.A. There he is. Inspirational, isn't it? But not good enough to make it onto the front bench. Right, just before we go, you have heard me say that for Australia to be what we want it to be, we can't underestimate the extraordinary influence on Australia tomorrow that's being exerted every day in every classroom around the country. Mark Latham and I have talked about this till we're blue in the face. Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales has retained Sarah Mitchell as the Education Minister. She'll need to lift her game. But in schools across Australia, parents are not getting, by way of education, what they think they're getting. Every other day, there's proof of the crisis. Now, try this. The first ever, and isn't that in itself a problem, The first ever Australian Teacher Workforce Data Report was released on Friday by the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. And it shows that, are you ready for this? Nearly half the nation's maths and foreign language teachers are not qualified to teach the subject. Half. Your children are sitting in a classroom and the maths teacher or the French teacher or the German teacher may be only a page ahead of them. If that, not qualified to teach the subject. How do you spell betrayal? This is a profession and a mess. And it's not essentially the teacher's fault. On the one hand, they're thrown into an environment where they have no expertise and no choice, do this job or there is no job. However, I don't buy this business that nine hours a week is spent planning lessons and six hours spent marking student work. I don't know what they're marking because children emerging from school can't spell and can't punctuate, making elementary mistakes which have never been corrected. So what's this business about six hours marking student work? And two and a half hours communicating with parents for what? Every week? Come on. Does that happen? Nonetheless, there is a further issue here because this was a survey of nearly 18,000 teachers. One in seven planned to quit in the next 10 years. A quarter of all teachers plan to quit teaching before retirement age. Men who make up only 22% of the teaching workforce, and that's a problem and young teachers are the likeliest to want to leave the profession. But here's the rub. And this is where teachers have my full support. 61% blamed mental health issues or stress for wanting to quit. Only 29% wanted higher pay. The problem? The problem is discipline. The teacher has had all authority to discipline a child virtually taken away from him or her. The language and behaviour that many male and female teachers, especially female, have to endure is beyond disgraceful, such that I believe the police should be called in. Appalling language used to intimidate female teachers. Appalling behaviour. And can any education administrator tell me what redress is available to the teacher? None. In many areas, it's a blackboard jungle. So on the one hand, you've got between 36 and 46% of teachers teaching subjects in which they have no special skill. A quarter of the maths teachers said they had no training in maths. 20% of science teachers, no training in science. And we're spending $114 billion on all of this? Well, let me say for the umpteenth time, without content and discipline, you can't have education. This report indicates a total absence of content via teachers not qualified to teach the subject and almost a total absence of discipline. So we might as well rip up the $114 billion the nation spends on education and throw the money on the fire. Which brings me to the quote for the night. Education is the passport to the future because tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Well, thanks for being with us worldwide. Remember when it comes to frank opinion, make the website alanjones.com.au the salt and pepper of your life. I'll see you all tomorrow. Good night.